Listeners, start your engines. Tours episode 40. Rob here. On this episode, Jackson Boren joins us to talk about 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as we start a brand new mega series going through all six theatrically released Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles films in the lead up to this year's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles colon Mutant Mayhem, which will be hitting theaters in August. As always, you can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1990. Our family grows. The city itself will be our playground to use as we please. Rewarding ourselves and punishing our enemies. We've been looking for you, Miss O'Neill. There is a new enemy, freaks of nature. Together, we will punish these creatures. What the heck was that? Looked like sort of a big title in a trench coat. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, we are starting a brand new mega series. We're heading all the way to 1990 for the beginning of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie franchise. Uh, multiple iterations, just like like we like to do on this show. Like we started with the Child's Play franchise. This one has several different versions, different uh, creative teams, different visions. And we're starting off, of course, with the original film from 1990. And I am honored to welcome to the show, Jackson Boren. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate it. So tell people a little bit about who you are, what you have going on, and what they're missing if they're not following you on Twitter. Oh, man. Well, um, yeah, um, I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter sort of like sharing um, my takes on different movies or different movie eras. Um, one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm doing a rewatch of the Hollywood Pictures sort of canon, their, their catalog. Um, that's one of the things that I, I spend a lot of times, a lot of time in my rewatch kind of focusing on right now. Um, as far as, as far as Twitter, I like connecting with, uh, you know, film lovers and cinephiles like yourself and just sure, sort of sharing, you know, my love for movies. And, you know, I've got some jokes on there too. There's a lot of nonsense in between, 
Uh, but for the most part, that's, that's where I spend my time is on Twitter. Um, you know, just, and I do a little podcasting here and there, mostly on, on other people's shows, but that's where, um, where I've gotten to, you know, meet and connect with others and, and learn about shows like yours that, you know, are, are, have all these kinds of different interesting angles to the, the movies we love. So when you, uh, when you pitched to me the two different, uh, shows, uh, first off, you know, they both sound great, but franchise detours sounded like something that would be an inter- interesting entry point for me here. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I love that so much of your your uh, content on online is focused on the 80s, the 90s, the the VHS era, as it were. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> when, you know, that's when I, we, we've discovered we're the same age, essentially. So yeah. that's when we, that was, you know, those mid mid late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s, like that's, that's like our the our the formative period where we became cinephiles, where we you know are where we came up and realized like, oh, movies are not only entertaining, like there's a whole like business and there's an art form and there's like different stylistic touches and filmmakers and all this other everything that goes into it. Uh, so I, I right. like that. That's it seems like yeah, where you're coming. From. Yeah, when you when you mentioned to me that a lot of the sort of the wheelhouse that you were you were running in with franchise detours was like the 80s and 90s i said oh that's like perfect for me because you know i'm a i'm a fan of movies from like the 60s and 70s and even you know definitely now uh but for some reason when i'm spending time just sort of like researching or reading online i just always kind of end back in this formative period of you know the 80s and 90s where it's just a an area that's nostalgic and it's something that i enjoy and and some of the things that I really get into are some of the things that get either forgotten or you, you kind of had to be there to really understand it, which is like the way movies were marketed, the way uh, movies permeated pop culture and the way that we experience other areas of life. So like with this one, with uh, Teenage, Mut- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I, I, I was like, this is like a perfect case study in that, in, in, in a movie and a, a franchise that really sort of especially in 1990 was just had its hands in in every area of pop culture. Yeah, absolutely. Like I always say for for my childhood like early on it was Masters in the Universe, Ghostbusters, uh Ninja Turtles, Power Rangers was like like that 4 to 14 or whatever window. And so they yeah. were like they were the <laughs> prominent pop culture force for myself and a lot of kids our age at that time. So when this came out, I'm assuming yeah, I was going to ask about your history with this franchise. I'm assuming it starts with the 80s animated series. Yeah, absolutely. That that was the original introduction for me to Ninja, to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was the 1987 cartoon. I think by the time I caught the show, I was six or seven years old. And so the, the comic book was basically as old as me, but I didn't really jump in or, or get to even experience the comic book till I got a little older. But the cartoon was like one of those things that was like a part of my my life almost every day i think i was watching it regularly and those early seasons of the of the cartoon i think were the most important for me um this movie uh the 1990 teenage mutant ninja turtles was one of the earliest vhs tapes i think i remember owning as a kid um you know the, the the teenage mutant ninja turtles and this film in particular hold a sort of a special place in my heart because when i was a kid and especially when I got into them, they were at their peak. And as much as a fan of like Star Wars as I am, I wasn't even born yet when those were in theaters. So by the time I got to those, 
you know, I wasn't experiencing the hype. You know, Star Wars was kind of in its dark age, as I like to describe it, until the until the special editions and then like the prequels came out. So I didn't get to experience like the the action figure sort of mania of the early '80s in that way. And then when Power Rangers came out, I mean, I w- I was definitely into the Power Rangers, but I was like on the cusp of like being a little too old for the Power Rangers when it was like when yeah. it was reaching its peak. And so I was into the Power Power Rangers, but not to the degree that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in 1990. Like I was into every aspect of it: the cartoon, the action figures, everything. And so this was this was perfect for me. Plus, it was like in the early 90s, you had this. I'm going to describe it as pizza culture. Like kids in the early 90s oh, were right. just yeah. ob- obsessed with pizza. Right? Americanized pizza culture was at a fever pitch in 1990 where it's like pizza hut and dominoes and round table pizza and any any kid that was like a of a certain age at that time remembers the the dine-in pizza hut experience and and what those restaurants were like and i'm sure you can you can picture that little red plastic cup um that is like hand in hand for me with this movie and yeah i know that a lot of people will remember in the in the teenage mutant ninja turtles the the first movie especially uh, Domino's had this big, uh, it like had a big product placement in the film, but Pizza Hut, they were the ones that got like all of the, the marketing outside of that. So Pizza Hut all had all these tie-ins and you had like, you know, commercials on the VHS and they, I think they sponsored the, they had like an out of, out of their shells, like tour where the, they essentially did sort of these like live shows around the country and Pizza Hut was, was tied to that too. And so yeah, that, that's just when I'm thinking back to that time, these are some of the the things that immediately come to mind sort of peripherally around the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Yeah, I saw that tour when it when it came uh, yeah. here. I'm in Florida. So I, that's one of my I, embarrassingly one of my earliest like concert memories was <laughs> was seeing the coming out of their shells tour with the Ninja Turtles, which I've seen clips of now over the years. And I was like, oh, man, this is cringy as hell. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah it, no, it's it's, <laughs> it, it's funny. It's funny how something like this has so many different sort of shades, and I think that's where you're going to find a lot of the interesting layers with this franchise. Is is each different iteration are very different from others. Like so, like the comic book was very dark. The comic book was yeah. much more along the lines of like, and they and they've talked about this. The the creators Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird have talked about how the comic book was more in line with like the Frank Miller Daredevil and some of these graphic novels where, you know, it's a lot more violent. It's all like black and white. And, and then you get to this movie and then the, the series running concurrently. And then, you know, something like the out of their shells tour is like, wow, like we're all over the place and we haven't even gotten to the sequels. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's, that's, what's so interesting about, this franchise is that unlike, and it's it's so weird to think now of Star Wars as kind of a dead franchise, but that's basically what it was at that point. Yeah. And in you know when this came out, and like you said with Power Rangers, like I I saw the original run, and then once it started going to Power Rangers Zio and all of that, I start, I lost interest pretty fast. Uh, but this this one never really went away. Like it's even after the movie stopped, the show there was a 2003 show, there was a 2012 show. It was like a 2016, like there's a, there's been shows continually. So like kids today still know these characters. They, they had a 
Netflix movie uh, like last year, Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I think. Uh, yeah. So this it's it's kept itself alive in various media, uh, you know, which is sort of kind of coming back to your point yeah. about there's another the one live show and everything. There's another one coming yeah. coming this summer. Um, Seth Rogen is is doing it. Yeah. So exactly. yeah, I mean, it just feels like more than any other, and and they more than any other franchise or or IP, the Ninja Turtles feels like something where, I mean, people are able to kind of. Ex- pick and choose and experience these different things separate from each other. And there's not right. so much of a, like with the star Wars where, I mean, I love star Wars and it, it, there's just a very volatile sort of the prequels and the original and the, the sequel trilogy and, and all of the sort of the, the toxic sort of back and forth that happens between those. It doesn't feel like, or at least maybe I'm on, I'm too far on the periphery. I don't really see that as much with the Ninja Turtles. Like people are able to kind of experience them and be like, yeah, I like this one. I don't like that one. Yeah, I want to I wanna go back real fast because you mentioned Frank Miller, obviously who's big in shaping the uh, the public perception of Batman as being this dark, gritty character, not the wham, ba- uh, wham, pow, yeah. if kind of character from the, the Adam West series. Uh, this feels like a movie that wouldn't happen without 1989's Batman. First of all, I, I feel like the way that this is presented is that the Ninja Turtles are able to navigate that realm of from from being strictly for kids to being more you know more uh, mature and darker, and get away with it all in a way that Batman people are still like, oh, this is not my Batman. He yeah. would never do that. That kind of thing. So it feels very much of that late '80s, early '90s period where. Batman came out and then suddenly they were like, whoa, we can take comic book characters seriously. Like we don't have to, you know, lean into the the goofiness of it all because on paper, four six foot tall ninja, you know, turtles that fight, that, that use martial arts and, and like hide in the shadows in New York is a goofy idea. It could be handled different ways. And, and you know, they, they, this movie nails that balance of that tone between the animated series and the comics. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it was the perfect time, I think, for a movie like this to happen. But it, it but it took all of these sort of moving parts, and it and I really consider this movie like a miracle that it actually happened because, yeah. like the studios, if you know anything about the history, nobody wanted to touch this movie because there had been all of these flops of like sort of similar sort of adaptations leading up to that. I mean, you would think in today's IP landscape that this IP soaked landscape, it seems insane that, you know, all these studios would not be jumping on adapting something that was as popular as the cartoon was in the years between like 87 and 90. Um, but I guess the, like the Howard the Duck and Garbage Pail Kids and Masters of the Universe, there were all of these sort of adaptations that had bombed like one after another that they yeah. felt were like so close in that vein that you know, no one wanted to touch it. But then, you know, they it just ended up in the right hands having, um, I think it was, um, what's this, uh, there's a writer named Bobby Herbeck uh, who was actually, um, he had brought it to Golden Harvest. And Golden Harvest was, you know, if you know anything about them, it's a Hong Kong, um, you know, studio. Uh, that was, you know, makes, you know, a lot of a lot of these films, martial arts films, and they were able to take it and say, okay, well, let's see how we can adapt this. And they were the person that was in charge of um, 
the head of production, his name is Tom Gray, he said, okay, first of all, he was like pushing back on Bobby a ton when he was first pitched it. But he said, okay, let's think about this. This is a movie where we can put all of our actors in suits. So we don't need famous people. They just need to be able to do the, the fighting and the combat. And so that essentially sold him on making this as like a low budget independent film. And yeah, for me, I, I think that as far as the tone is concerned, um, Batman was like a great primer to what they tried to do with this. And I, I think that um, Steve Barron, the director, um, he is the reason why we get what we got here. And we can go into it a little bit later in the, uh, in the discussion. But uh, there's actually, I think, I think we actually could have gotten an even better movie than this. But mm-hmm. I'm really happy with what we got from from Baron's vision. He was a, a music video director who had done like, you know, Michael Jackson and Aha and all these other other artists as far as like these really cool visionary uh music videos. And so when he was brought on to do this, um, I think the studio brought him on because of his relationship to Jim Henson. And he had like worked with Jim Henson on the the show The Storyteller. Right. So uh, and and that's the other the other key component when I say moving parts is I don't think this movie could have been made without Jim Henson. 100%. I mean, and this is also essentially the, one of the last projects he touched because he passes away this, the year this movie comes out in right. 1990. So it's, it's, it's like the last, the last Henson, uh, you know, the magic kind of while, while his, during his lifetime. And I think you, you can tell like the difference in the suits between this one and you know, in the second one, but particularly the third one, when the Jim Henson Creature Shop wasn't involved, it's egregious. Yeah. <laughs> Looking back, like this, it feels like it shouldn't it work. It should, like, a, for many reasons, this movie feels like it shouldn't work. But, like, even the idea of having the turtles be guys in suits shouldn't work because it should look goofy or it shouldn't, you know, I don't know. It, it, yeah. it fits because they're also able to actually have actual fight choreography in this, mm-hmm. in this you know, in this film, there's the, the, the turtles actually, you know, know how to fight as opposed to like the animated show. It was a lot, a lot more slapsticky. It was always like, Oh, they throw, they throw tires around the villains or something silly like that. Uh, I I really love that, that they're able to blend the animatronics and, uh, and the costumes and actually have them be, you know, mobile in them. Yeah. There's a, there's actually a a really good quote. uh, I wanted to share with you from Steve Barron, the director where he talks a little bit about, you know, what he wanted to do um, going into this. And it actually mentions Batman. And he says, um, I didn't want to do something that was bloody. I didn't want to watch that film. Funnily enough, Batman came out at the same time. It was sort of the tone I was already aiming for. The films that I loved, there was a sense of humor, but there was also a sense of peril, of real peril, of grounded peril, like something that had repercussions for what you did, but had a wonderful sense of fun with it. I was also a big fan of Ghostbusters. So, you know, you can kind of see in the movie, you know, that that comes across very apparently what what uh Baron was trying to do there. Yeah, I I think uh it's it's interesting too because it was I I had read that he was fired towards the end of production yeah. because he was going darker and they they wanted to rein it back in and and keep the focus on well we need those kids who watch yeah. that cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. need this to be accessible to them. Uh, I, I, because you see little bits and pieces of that in this movie. Like there's a little bit of extra. The score kind of lightens up some of yeah. the violence, or the sound effects, or 
the one part where Tatsu essentially kills one of the Foot Clan, yeah. and then they clearly added in ADR the breathing, like he's gonna be okay. Yeah. Uh, and then cut to the other Foot Clan, the other member of the Foot Clan, like sitting next to him, looking sad, like his guy, his friend just died because yeah. he was supposed to have little things like that. Like I, I agree with you. I would have liked to have seen uh, even a PG thirteen version of this. Like, what would that vision have been? Uh, yeah. I, I think. I mean, if they if they had that footage, I would definitely be something I would still be interested in checking. Yeah, I mean, the the thing about this is there was they they wanted to to bring it back down and make it more, I guess, make it darker. It, the original script that Bobby Herbeck wrote was apparently it was way more quippy, way funnier. There was just a a lot lighter tone to it. And when Steve Barron came in and brought the the screenwriter uh, Todd Langan, they just kind of rewrote it and they they said we're going to tie this more to the the comics. We're going to tie it to yeah. its source material. And so they they went and and did all that. A lot of the the stuff involving like the um, the turtles' origins, like the stuff on the rooftop at the end, the the retreat to the farmhouse where they go out. They're like all that the, the shredder stuff. All of that was kind of brought in on their um revision of the script and a lot of the the elements you know were taken from those early comics and and the the cartoons that weren't in it um in the original draft yeah but they still a lot of the iconography that people know it's sort of like uh in in a way sort of like the wizard of oz like everybody knows those characters but we know them as they were portrayed in the 1939 movie where in the book there are no ruby slippers things like that yeah Uh, you know, they take the colored bandanas and the pizza and mm-hmm. April wearing her yellow jacket, at least briefly. Yeah. Uh, you know, where he, things like that. Yeah, It, it feels like a, a the perfect marriage of those two because it does. It's like they're plugging the sensibility of the animated series into the world of the comics, if that makes sense. It's kind of what it feels yeah. like. Yeah. And, and we could have gotten a much worse version of this because, I mean, like you said, you know, without the Jim Henson Creature Shop, it things kind of start to fall apart. But there were other versions. Like, I don't know if you if you read about the stuff. Um, I'd, I'd heard this story years ago and, and kind of forgot it until this past week. But Roger Corman wanted to do an adaptation of this. And his whole idea was just to hire a bunch of stand-up comedians and then, like, paint them green and put them in suits. And they were just going to be like, it was going to be them. But I don't know. I don't know the extent to which they were going to do makeup or what. But it was, he wanted Sam Kinison. Gallagher, Billy Crystal, and Bobcat Goldthwait to just sort of be like covered in green paint and just, he was going to have them do their thing. I mean, do they have to be Ninja Turtles? Can they just be something else? Because I would I would watch that. Yeah, I would just like to see them in a movie together, like separate yeah. from this whole thing. That would have been cool. But yeah, that, that Roger Corman thing just sounded kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, I mean, then we get this. And I mean, the end of the 80s, This is this is another reason why I think it was the perfect time for it to happen was because live action puppetry was kind of trending. Uh, it was, it was, it was popular. It was the best way to do these things. And, um, Jim Henson, I mean, he had already done amazing stuff with labyrinth and dark crystal. Uh, but this was, this was coming in right before sort of the, I want to say like the, the birth of CGI, and and you yeah. needed you needed someone who was as good as Jim Henson's Creature Shop to be able to give the creatures this like impressive perspective, but then also be mobile enough to do stunt work and combat in. And they were just they were lucky that they got Henson on this. Um, I feel like 
you know, his his contributions are what the the scenes live and die on. Unfortunately, he wasn't he wasn't he didn't really want to do it in the first place because he wasn't excited about doing the violence. And I think I'm not sure if, if he was happy with how it came out. I know a lot of other people at the the Jim Henson Creature Shop, you know, they were proud of it. They thought it was a great accomplishment, but it was definitely something where he was kind of going into it begrudgingly at first because of the the content. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I, I he's coming from the world of the Muppets, which we covered all the, what is it, eight movies last year on on this feed of the Muppets franchise. And, and it's interesting that there's the other connection between those is that this is the, like, only the second film that we've covered in Franchise Detours that is essentially an adaptation of a television series, the other being the Muppet movie. Yeah. Uh, so it's what when you were going to see this, knowing the, the series, what were your expectations? Did this meet them? How, how well do you think it translates the, you know, the popularity of that show to the big screen? Oh, I, it blew me away. I mean, I, I remember as a kid, you know, because I, I saw both this and um, Secret of the Ooze in theaters. And I remember, you know, this was, this was maybe the first, yeah, this might have been the first time I had had that experience of something I love being adapted for the big screen in that way. Uh, because everything else had been like the opposite. Because I had seen Star Wars on home video, um, Ghostbusters, I think I had seen on VHS before I ever saw the the cartoon or anything like that. So this was like the first time it was going from small screen to big screen for me. And then like a year later or two years later, the same thing happened with Batman Returns. Because I, I don't think I saw the original Batman in theaters. I think I didn't see it till VHS. Uh, but for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, seeing the way that, you know, they brought the the characters to life and they adapted all these things, I think at, at that age especially, you're like, whoa, this is like, it, it, it not only is it bringing it to life in a, like a new sort of like action-packed way, but you have all these different things that you're like reference points that you're uh, you're looking at and seeing like the for the first time as a kid, you're kind of experiencing Easter eggs and things that you get because you watch the cartoon. I don't know if you noticed, but like the the pilot of the cartoon which I actually rewatched a, a week or two ago in preparation for this. A lot of these beats are brought in for the movie too, like the mm. the whole introduction of of April running into the Foot Clan and then being saved by the turtles in that opening sequence. That was all in the cartoon, also. So that was that was a really cool thing for me seeing that as a kid, and then you know really feeling like kind of watching a grown up movie here. Like you know yeah. this is. This is all, this is because it's a little bit darker. You really felt like you were getting away with something. Um, and I think another thing that lends to that too is this is a movie that it, it kind of captured. It doesn't try to like gloss over New York City or the grittiness or anything like that. It has a very like pre Giuliani NYC yeah. on, on full display. Yeah. The, I don't know, you know, and there's a few movies like that that every time I, I see another movie, I'll, I'll, I'll be like, oh yeah, that reminds me of this or that. Uh, the same year, um, Abel Ferreira's King of New York comes out. And that's another one that I feel like kind of is taking place in the same New York city as this based on like just the surface aesthetic, you know, the way the streets are shot, the smoke, the lighting. I mean, it's a much more violent movie, but, but this movie just really felt like it captured that same New York city, at least from an outside perspective of someone who didn't grow up there. Yeah, that this was the popular vision of New York as sort of the seedy under 
underbelly, uh, you know, with the crime was r- running rampant and all of that. And yeah. so I, lo- I love that. The, I had no, I had taken note of, of that as well. I love that. And then that the, this movie, it treats the, it treats the, the source material seriously, but it also, it also applies, well, how would that, how, how do we make that work and make it feel real and make it feel grounded? Considering we're talking six foot tall turtles. Yeah. Um, well, I guess they're a little shorter than six feet here. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I noticed that and I love the, the portrayal of the Foot Clan because we're dealing in the realities of, you know, uh, independent filmmaking. And this was the highest grossing independent film until uh, the Blair Witch Project almost a decade later when this came out. The $200 million worldwide, which is crazy. Uh, on a thirteen point five billion uh, million dollar budget, yeah, and so so no Dimension X, you know, no Krang. We're not even. We're just like, let's do the Turtles and Shredder and see how how far we can get with that. Uh, we, you know, we don't have the ambition or the money or the scope or you know the means to to handle that yet. Uh, and so what they do is they they find this way in, which is having the Shredder be essentially a, a you know a kind of a cult leader leading this army of street thugs and recruiting kids yeah, and uh, kind of preying upon them. And, and I love that, that aspect of it, that we get the character of Danny, who's in this movie and only this movie, never referenced elsewhere ever again. But I, I love that, that it gives us, a, it gives us a, a grounded way in. It makes them, the Foot Clan feel like a tangible threat. This is the kind of movie that's, air quotes, for kids, and yet the villains are actually villainous. Yeah. They're actually evil. They're actually scary. It's not like, uh, my daughter uh, is six years old. One of her favorite movies is the, the Sonic the Hedgehog movies uh, of you know of late with Jim Carrey. And yes, he's yeah. bad in that, but he's also quipping constantly. Yeah, um, yeah. it's the complete antithesis to the Shredder in this movie. Yeah, and I think I think that was another thing that Laird and Eastman uh, wanted when they were adapting this. And I think they had made this known to the filmmakers that they wanted this to to be made you know taken seriously and. That was another, you know, you know, thing with the cartoon is by the time you got a few seasons into the cartoon, you had all of these sort of like just goofball sort of villains. You had a lot of, uh, you know, just the bebop and rock steady of it and Krang and a lot of stuff that was would be really hard to shoe in, shoe in into this uh, shoehorn into this movie. Uh, but but that they were able to work around because Shredder's like, you know, he's he's essentially like a, a kingpin type of character here. Um, yes. and, and so they were able to make that work here. Um, you know, when I, when I think back to um, the, the opening, the opening scene of this movie, um, it works so well because it sets up, as you, as you mentioned, the Foot Clan in this really just organic exposition. You have this newscast, you have all of these, this, this montage of the, the crime wave unfolding. And uh, it's it's a great way to just sort of set the table for the movie without having to tell you a lot about them. And that's that's another thing that I really liked about you know movies like this from this era, especially comic book movies, where you're just dropped into the world of these Ninja Turtles, and you know you don't know much about them. But it's like we enter the story in a world where the Ninja Turtles exist. This isn't an origin story; it's our first time with them. But it's something where if this movie was made today, you'd have this much more fleshed out. And I and I'm trying to remember, you know, the degree to which the the origin story was done in the the 2014 version. This just drops you right in. Yeah, 
the I think they they both kind of drop you right in, uh, and they're both they both tell the origin and flashback. But that one I think goes with some of the later comics where the turtles were uh, part of the lab experiment, and April knew them when she was a kid and mm. named them and all of that. Okay. And here yeah. it's the you know it's the early Mirage comics where the the ooze and uh, Splinter was um, was uh, Hamato Yoshi's pet rat yeah, and learned learn martial arts from him and and uh and witnessed the whole thing with the Rokusaki and had that you know that history yeah uh and i think that that that's also when i saw this as a kid that that's obviously not what they do in uh, the animated series and there splinter was hamato yoshi which yeah. always seemed like that's a bigger jump <laughs> for a movie like this dude turned into a giant rat yeah i think it makes more sense with this rat got really big. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that was like a good call on this one because then it's not yeah. like, oh, you're a rat that used to be a man. Like, yeah, this was <laughs> this worked really well in the context of the movie, and um, yeah. So, so like I was mentioning, so we we have this whole introduction with the the crime wave happening and all these you know you know thefts taking place, and you know the thing is like the way this this movie was shot, it's like even the the daytime scenes are kind of gloomy. So it just had this yeah. whole sort of like uh, sheen to it in that way. Um, I don't know if you, like you mentioned uh, Hogue, um, April O'Neil um, played by Judith Hogue. She, she was wearing that yellow raincoat at the beginning, but only at the beginning because apparently she didn't want to wear the yellow jumpsuit, like April O'Neil's famous yellow jumpsuit. That's something that I think I might've noticed as a kid and was like, Hey, you know, like you, you get caught up on those yeah. things as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I and then it's I think it's worth now kind of transitioning into Judith Hogue's performance mm -hmm. as April O'Neil because it, obviously she was in this movie. She originated the live action version of that character. She was not asked back for the sequel. For I think she was you know com complaining about certain things or that's who which depends who you ask. Yeah. She I feel, that yeah. feels like one of those icky Hollywood things that it's like yeah. everybody has their own different versions. For yeah. Them. Yeah, some people say like, you know, she was complaining about the violence and I think she's quoted saying like, you know, conditions on set or things like that. So yeah. for whatever reason, she didn't come back. I, I thought she did a great job and I love the, the backstory that, you know, she was in Cadillac Man with Robin Williams prior to this and how when he found out that she was in this, he got super excited and was like kind of coaching her into the role because it's like, oh, you're doing Ninja Turtles. I, that totally sounds like a Robin Williams thing. Um okay. Uh, for, for for whatever reason, I I I thought she did a great job in this movie. I I don't know if this is a hot take or not. I think I've shared it on Twitter in the past. I actually think I prefer Paige Turco from the second film mm -hmm. a little bit more. Uh, but that's that's really neither here nor there. It's just it's just an opinion I have. But I I think they both yeah. did great. It's just I think when I look back on it, I felt like. And maybe it's because in the second film, Paige Turco is supposed to have more of a, a comfortable rapport with the turtles as opposed to having right. just met them. Um, it just, I love the way her character vibes and her April vibes with them in that movie, especially in that sort of first couple scenes. But yeah. Yeah, she's a, she's a good entry point in here. And, you know, since we mentioned the 2014 movie, uh, and I, you know, I just recorded that earlier before this episode yesterday. Yeah. Uh, it's in that in the 2014 one, Megan Fox's version of that character kind of dominates the film. I feel like April 
it serves as the entry point in and then it's still a key instrumental part of the team but not mm-hmm. but the, it doesn't feel like she uh she's still steals the spotlight from the turtles themselves and i think that's it's a delicate balance there but i feel like it you know like maybe the, the after the first act they they kind of assimilate nicely uh into each other those those characters yeah i think that might have even been an advantage that they had in this movie and in the second one of not having you know, some actors that were really big in some of these human roles because they didn't take this. It, the movie's about the turtles. So they don't take the spotlight away or anything like that. That's, you know, 2014, that's a, a, Megan, Fox, a Megan Fox movie. That's her vehicle, you know. Um, you know, th- so this was something where I feel like it worked to their advantage. The other thing, you mentioned the character Danny. I, I thought that was a cool character to have in this and to also not have it be someone who was famous that would distract you because that's supposed to be i feel like the kids watching it that's also a you know it's a uh, an avatar it's it's someone that you're also kind of learning from through this story it was it was a way for the movie to kind of have a like a moral lesson of sorts and say like you know this is this is a kid that's learning to do the right thing and is learning from the turtles and from splinter and I, th- I thought that was a cool uh, inclusion that I, I frankly, I don't think it, it really hit for me as a kid that same way. I think I got the lesson, but yeah. It also feeds the, the theme of sort of the parallels of uh, the Foot Clan as this sort of like, uh, you know, twisted, perverse version of a family. Yeah. And then the more the the warmth and the connection that Splinter has with the Turtles and that by extension they have with April and Casey. You have that great scene later on where uh, where a young Sam Rockwell as yeah. uh, head head thug, I think, or head punk or something, whatever his name, his, his character name is. Uh, he's like, oh, you know, we're a family. And then in case he's like this, you call this family, this yeah. Yeah, that guy down there and Tatsu's family. And and I kind of kind of shrugs him off. I, I love that. That is essentially what this movie is. It's like, OK, well, what? is the definition of a family what makes a family and you know that's that in that way it, it feels perfectly aimed at the you know i was seven when this movie came out at that yeah. age group uh in that what, what you were saying with the the moral lesson and all of that and i think danny is the sort of the fulcrum that 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 uh that message kind of hangs on yeah yeah i i can tell you like watching this as a kid like that opening when april takes the sigh after being attacked and then the, the turtles have escaped or the tur- turtles have like gone back down in the sewer and Raphael sees that he's like lost his sign. He's just like, damn. And then the, the opening credits start and you still haven't seen the, tur- the turtles, but that music hits. I know some people might think that was cheesy, but I, I just remember as a kid, that's sort of like a fist pump moment. I was just like all yeah. in from that. And then just, just going into this, this scene where, they really established the characters of the four turtles really quickly, just in a few lines. And these are these are those cheesy sort of one-liners that we're used to hearing from the the turtles. Uh, but they really nailed it in just a few a few just short lines. Uh, the other thing, by comparison with the 2014 movie, I feel like these actually sound like teenagers. Like their voices are like pitched yes. up. They're much like when I watched the 2014 version. I feel like they sound like grown men a lot of the time. 
<laughs> yeah, so, my so guest and like, I got, got into that uh, quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, it they're makes not... and it makes the sexualization of April in that movie even more creepy. Yeah, you're like wait a minute, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I mean, and they and they flirt with that a little bit in this movie with like with Michelangelo kind of like being like, oh, she called me Mikey, and uh, but, but it's, it's like a teenager with yeah. a crush on of an of an older woman. Yeah, it totally nothing's is. gonna happen. Yeah, but you're just like. She's pretty, and she talked to me, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and that's yeah. and that's why I feel like this really connects. This might be the movie that connects the closest to the cartoon because they keep that spirit in it alive. And the, I think the voice work is incredible. They did great, all all four of them. I love I loved hearing Corey Feldman in this because he's just like one of those voices that he's like immediately recognizable. Right. And I, at the time of this movie's release, probably the most famous person in the cast, too. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And and um, I mean, although, yeah, I know it's un- unfortunately he wasn't brought back for the sequel, but it, it was it was kind of cool to remember that he was a part of this at that time. Uh, the other thing that really stood out to me uh, in this this time around is the sort of genius thing of keeping the turtles in the dark a lot of the time. Because I think that really lended itself to the realism of the puppetry and the costumes, mm-hmm. like this whole opening sequence, and then them going down into the um, uh, the the turtles' lair in the sewer, and all of that. Honestly, it, even the the production design. This guy uh, Roy Forge Smith is this uh, he's this um, English production designer who did this, and he had done some Monty Python stuff, and he said. So much of the sewer stuff, so much of the rooftop stuff, all of this was like built like full scale, the the turtles layer, all that. And it just looks so awesome when you when you look at it and realize all that, that A, they didn't really shoot in New York City because they didn't they weren't able to. They didn't I think it was cheaper to shoot in North Carolina. And they shot at the old uh Dino De Laurentiis studio that I guess had um it had closed after after De Laurentiis had gone filed for bankruptcy. So they said, okay, well, we can build all this stuff in this studio and shoot it for cheaper. And then they just did all the wide, like establishing New York City stuff in New York. And um, that was able to make it work. But yeah, this whole thing, um, when the turtles are all coming back down uh, into the into the lair with, with Splinter, one of my first things I, I realized was as a kid, well, first off, Robert, what, what was your favorite turtle growing up? I just want to know. Michelangelo. I was Michelangelo same. for same. Halloween probably this year, <laughs> I would assume. 90 or 91. Yeah. Same. I think I think that was like a popular answer. Like Michelangelo is like the one that felt the most like the kids your age growing up. Like, first yeah. of all, he just wants to have a good time. Uh, he's just a party dude, right? Uh, yeah, but, exactly. But watching the movie this time around, I think I feel like Raphael is my favorite, favorite turtle now. And I think it was because of the the arc that his character has in this movie and also yeah. the way uh, they were able to kind of give him some darkness that he has to work through. And a lot of people I, I noticed online, like have criticized this character and the way it was in this film, maybe because it was a kid's movie, but I thought it worked really well this time around. I, I mean, w- watching it just freshly this past week. Yeah, no, I, I think Raphael is, is a really uh, interesting character that throughout this franchise continually, stays a major focus and uh, as you see later in in i think particularly in in uh 2007's tmnt 
that sort of dynamic, the conflict with Raphael and Leonardo comes to yeah. a head. They have a big battle scene yeah. in that movie, like midway through, which I think is stunningly animated and probably one of my favorite Ninja Turtle movie moment, uh, moments in, in the entire franchise. Just because it feels like if you view that movie as I do as sort of the unofficial fourth movie to this series, it it feels like the, that kind of animosity that his his conflict between staying true to his brothers and following his own path and sort of having to to discover that his own way, all of that I think is really is really interesting and really relatable. And uh, of course, you have Leonardo on the other side being like, you know, the the stalwart leader and whatever Master Splinter says, we need to go and meditate and we need to you know follow you know follow our practice and our training and all that other stuff. So I like that. Even from this first movie, they they kind of have moments where that uh, that bond between the two of them is is kind of comes to the forefront. Yeah, I I actually do agree that there's kind of a good through line in the characters to that movie. I I don't know you know how intentional that was in the making of that film, but just seeing them be able to pick pick up where things kind of left off, at least in terms of like the characters and how they relate to each other, I thought that was really cool in the in the TMNT one. Um, in this one, you have this whole sequence that might be one of my one of my favorite parts of the movie, and it's kind of like an odd scene to to point to, but it it's just sort of indicative of the darker tone that um, that Baron and Sally Menke were able to to capture, and that maybe was it maybe was a remnant of their original cut. Like I don't know how much the studio cut this apart, but even as a kid. I felt like there was an earnest care taken to making this look serious and well shot and edited mm-hmm. and dark. And so the scene where um, April, or, or not, not where April, the scene where um, Raphael is going out to the movies and kind of like leaving the, the other turtles behind and just needs to like get out and get some fresh air. Um, I, th- I thought that was really cool. Um, just sort of showing his, his darkness and his character and then his, uh, encounter the introduction of Casey Jones, where he's, you know, stopped these uh, these thieves, these thugs from robbing this lady, and then Casey Jones sort of intervenes and seeing the 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 interaction with them and how they sort of have a different approaches to justice. Uh, I thought that was really cool, and and yeah, the the way the whole thing was shot, it was just like a very um, it, it felt like a a darker scene amongst you know this film. I think more than any. Of the other, and this is not to say it's necessarily, well, I guess it is to say it's the best of them. But in my opinion, like this one is the, it's the Ninja Turtle movie that feels the most like a real movie. Like a, a yeah. and kind of going with what you're saying. Like it's, it's, they're not treating it like, oh, this is a, it's a you know, it's a film adaptation of a, of a, of a cartoon. It's a kid's movie. It's disposable or whatever. Like there was real intent and real purpose and real care, as you were saying put to to all the elements of this production. I think just noticing this time how smooth the, the writing is. I mean, yes, there's pizza jokes and there's radical and all yeah. that stuff. Like, obviously, we get all the, the Ninja Turtles, as you said, are teenagers. But uh, the character dynamics are, like, so clear right off the bat. Yeah. You have the the moment, like you said, the, the, the logo for the movie comes in, and it's the logo from the animated series, first right. of all, also. Five minutes in, you see them all. They're joking around. You get the dynamic. They're, they're kind of ribbing each other. Then when they meet April, you get the uh, you get the, the the moment of shock 
where she's like, oh my God, giant turtles. And then later on, they're bonding, they're joking, they're sharing a meal. Uh, that scene that you mentioned with Raph and Casey or with or Casey and April scenes later on, like mm-hmm. these feel, you know, they're, 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 the dynamics are clear and they make sense. And uh, there's such a, a, it's such a character-based approach to this movie that's based on a com based on an animated series based on a comic book about giant turtles and i think that feels so refreshing yeah i i don't the last time i i I can't remember the last time that i experienced like a comic book movie like that felt this intimate and felt like this like character driven like like you're saying um which is you know this is unfortunate that the studio you know came in and you know fired uh baron and minky because you know, leave aside the the fact that it's insane that Sally Mankey, um went on from doing this to basically doing most of Tarantino's movies. Uh, but the fact that uh, Eastman and Laird they have been super outspoken about the fact that they were they loved Baron's vision for this and they loved the mm-hmm. direction that he was taking it in because it it felt like the comic book. And so I'm I've always wondered like, oh man, like is there a Baron Mankey cut out there? Is there Right, is, you know, is it is it even more like the comic book? Because that's what that's what it really felt like. And Eastman said that Jack Burton uh, was inspired uh, by uh, Jack Burton inspired the creation of Casey Jones. And when that you makes wa- so much sense when you watch that now, you know, now that I know that, I was like, oh yeah, I see that all over this character, and it's awesome. You know, from that from that first scene where you meet him all the way through, and and Casey Jones was also, I think another standout for me that, you know, truly the only reason why he's in this movie is because he's in the comic and in the cartoon and he doesn't really need to be there. But that's again, one of those things that I said as a kid, it's just like this big Easter egg that you're excited to see that he's in the movie. Yeah. Uh, Elias Codius is probably, honestly, probably my favorite performance in this movie. Like I think he's so much fun and that character you know, it's rough around the edges, obviously. There's a couple of comments that probably wouldn't, you know, fly in a PG movie for kids nowadays. But yeah. generally, he he's he has so much heart to him also. Like, you get that this, this guy, he's a complicated guy. He has his own way of doing things. But he really does care about April, about the turtles, about these kids. And so I, I love that. It's such an interesting, different take on a traditional hero. Plus, you know, he's such a great foil for for Raph, for Donatello, for yeah. all these different characters. Uh, and then also Kevin Clash as the voice of Splinter. I think oh, yeah, incredible work. Yeah. Uh, as the voice and the puppeteer for Splinter uh, yeah. in this film. Yeah, I mean, the Splinter, there, there are whole scenes where, you know, you have Splinter talking to Raphael or Splinter talking to uh, Leonardo and, and you, you kind of start to forget that you're watching two essentially puppets talking, yeah. even though one has a person inside of it. It's like they that is one of the miracles of this movie is like it really immerses you into these characters where you actually believe it, even though, you know, they're just these Jim Henson puppets. So, um, yeah. And you mentioned the the freak out scene with uh, April meeting the turtles. Uh, It's amazing how quickly they were able to establish this believable relationship between April and the turtles and how. You know, at first she's like, she's like, I'm dreaming. And I love, I love the line when she says like, why can't I dream about Harrison Ford? <laughs> uh, yeah. And then just the whole uh, exposition that I think, I think Splinter uh, giving her the backstory and the origin of them 
is maybe the only really bulky exposition you get in the movie. But it's yeah. shot in such a dynamic, weird way with this sort of like Betamax, like surrounded in darkness. Like, I don't know. I, I, I love that whole sequence. This feels to me uh, like the the only, possibly the only film for of this franchise where the the story and the writing actually supports the fact that the the four parts of the title, like you need these characters to be teenagers. We already established their dynamic. So teenager, uh, yeah. the way that they, the way that even some of most of the humor during the fighting, during the combat scenes is usually them just messing with the foot clan. Like they're just, yeah. they're kids. <laughs> so they want to make sure they want to make it fun for them. Um, yeah. So I, I love that. The mutant part, obviously, you know, we get the backstory, we get the little bits, you know, hints of the ooze, which the sequel will get into. The uh, the ninja part here, this, like you were saying, there's like, there's a sort of a spirituality at play in this movie that yeah. you don't normally see in these movies. It's, you know, it feels, it makes, it, it feels like they're kind of borrowing a little bit of the, uh, of the, you know, the Yoda playbook a little bit by leaning into the, the uh, you know, the older sensei and th that kind of uh, mentor-mentee relationship. But you get like the focus on meditation Mm -hmm. You get the more spiritual side of ninjutsu, uh, the whole thing about being a ninja and the art of invisibility that these mm -hmm. movies always like hint at, mention, but they don't lean into it as so so much of the credo of the the arts that they're practicing. Yeah, but uh, even they, they, they make, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. What's interesting is that Baron actually, I think he mentioned at some point that it was really important that the whole first scene you don't see the turtles until after the title because you needed to have some and i think he he said he would have even gone farther if they would have let him uh you know keep the turtles hidden in the shadows and really emphasize yeah the art of invisibility like they're not supposed to see you and i i, I like that you know raf still goes out to the movies and he's in a trench coat and he's like you know <laughs> it's it's ridiculous that you would think anybody this is this is borrowing from the clark kent wearing the the glasses yeah. and no one knowing his Superman book. Uh, but yeah, it, they're still trying to keep that sort of art of invisibility thing going as much as and they Casey's, can. Casey's like, Oh, I hate punkers, especially yeah. with green makeup and, <laughs> and, and ugly yeah. masks to cover their face or whatever. I'm like, yeah. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Um, but they even have like a vision quest sequence yeah. where they communicate with splinter. And again, to, to the fact of how much heart is in these movies, the turtles like Michelangelo is literally crying in that scene again taking it seriously these aren't ridiculous caricatures these are actually like if they were if there were four real teenage mutant ninja turtles this is what they'd be like and then the turtles part even when they're fighting they uh you know michelangelo uh, ducks by putting his head in his shell yeah. <laughs> uh they they use their shells as weapons to like slam into uh, bad guys or Two of them at at one point grasp hands and sort of use the shells as like to, to roll. Yeah, they're doing that uh, wheel of fortune thing and yeah, that was, all that stuff. Yeah, that was that was something that both from this movie and the second one, I felt like as a kid, you kind of were waiting for that or looking forward to that because like, what are the what are the creative ways they're going to take down these like foot foot clan soldiers other than just martial arts? Because there's only so many ways that you know a guy in a big rubber suit can believably you know pull off some of these uh martial arts moves no but they 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 are they are giant turtles and they use the assets that the, with which they were born and so i you know i appreciate that part of the the fight choreography uh 
Let's see. I uh, also, you know, the showdown with with the uh, Shredder and Splinter on the rooftop. We sort of yeah. mentioned that a little bit, uh, and then the garbage truck. <laughs> speaking of the of the darkness of this film, yeah, uh, the Shredder is seemingly crushed in a garbage, like a trash compactor. Yeah, uh, at yeah. the end of this movie, which again, it's a kids movie, so props to them for going there. Yeah, Casey pulls a trash truck right up to the side of the building, and then you have uh, Splinter showing up, which was. I thought it was cool that Splinter shows up to defeat the Shredder because this is essentially kind of like a revenge, not revenge, but it's Splinter having, you know, his master having been killed and him getting his his ear sliced and all this. It's sort of a revenge story of sorts. Uh, But he's even in that moment, he's not going to kill Shredder, but Shredder's the one that tries to, you know, you know, lunge back at him and he says, death comes for us all. Arokusaki, but something worse comes for you. For when you die, it will be without honor. And just, right. yeah, I love the the Casey Jones just pulling the lever and he's like, oops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the Han Solo shooting first kind of thing. It's Absolutely. that kind of character, which is why we love him. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to mention, we have, to, I, I wanted to mention the, the score by John Dupree because I, they have oh, yeah. the deluxe edition or whatever it is, like the recent release of that one and the Secret of the Ooze score. Mm-hmm. on Spotify. So I've been listening to those in preparation for this episode. Those scores are really strong. I, I don't know. It's, have you, uh, what are your thoughts on the score of I, this film? Cause I, I thought that so much to it. I thought the score to this was great. I love the, the, they had these, it shifts really quickly between like the dun, 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 like those like really yeah. dark, dark score pieces to like the theme song, which is this really like upbeat. Like that was, that was really fun, and I and it, I think it kind of kept the the spirit of the cartoon. Uh, but but the score, you know, the Jean Dupree, uh, you know, the rest of these more serious scenes, he's really able to like flesh it out and like make it sound like like you were saying like a real movie, like it felt like an adult yeah. movie, which was great. Um, and I know there was a soundtrack to this too. Uh, the one that really stands out to me, aside from you know Turtle Power at the end, they got the um, I think it's Partners in Crime did that, but. Um, MC Hammer has a song on this called This Is What We Do. And mm-hmm. it's during the scene where we're introduced to the the Foot Clan's headquarters. And this was like a perfect timestamp for me in sort of dating it in the right way because um, the Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him album was the first cassette tape I ever received as a gift. And that came out probably, I think, within months of this movie. And so that was like the yeah. perfect thing to have on. I don't even think, I don't think it had, I think the movie came out right around the time where if they had done it any later, they probably wouldn't have been able to afford MC Hammer on this, on this soundtrack. He was just like blowing up, blowing up at that point. He was. Um, so yeah. yeah so no, that, I, I had that cassette as well. Yeah. And then it's the year later that he's on the uh, Adams Family Groove. Right. Doing another, Yeah. Right. And and the funny thing about the Partners in Crime one, uh, at the end in the end credits, this this felt like it feels like a lost art, the crafting the movie soundtrack songs that are customized to the movie to the point mm-hmm. where the lyrics are talking about the movie. So you have like this one, you have the Adams Family MC Hammer song, um, like Men in Black by Will Smith. Like you don't have movie songs anymore that are like talking about the movie, or at least that that I, you know, it's not as common. No, not it's not so much the Sonic the Hedgehog movies. Not to bring that up again, but they feel like the they feel like a modern equivalent in a way because I see those movies now as a 
as a man and, and you know, father of two in my late thirties. And I'm like, mm. if I was six years old, this would be my favorite movie because I, I right back in the when I was six or seven years old, this was like my favorite movie. I had the poster for this on my childhood bedroom wall for years. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was that kind of totemic thing for for me as well. Uh, is there anything else about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1990 that we haven't talked about before you, uh, you know, that you oh, want to mention before we I move mean, on? I mean, we, we didn't go as deep into it, but the, the whole sequence in the middle of the movie where they retreat to the, the country yes. sort of farmhouse, this was something that felt a lot more like it, like it was really feeling like sort of an independent movie and something that you would not see in a big comic book movie nowadays. Because it it offered so much of a, it was a reprieve from everything that's happening in the city and the main conflict of the movie. But on top of that, you have a lot of these like great character moments where, you know, when April is sort of sketching these drawings of the turtles and she's Mm -hmm. talking about them, it's really differentiating their characters a little bit deeper. And you're getting these moments with her and, and Casey that almost feel like Han Solo, Princess Leia, sort of arguing, flirting. In a way, well, Donatello's even like it's like moonlighting, yeah. Isn't it? Which which reminds which is me, a reference people wouldn't get now probably. There was a lot of jokes like that in this that I felt like were almost like like is this movie just for kids? Like because these feel like they're written for for adults. Like they, like he yeah. he's talking about like this is the house from the the grapes of wrath, and they talk about <laughs> Vanna White, and he says the farm that time forgot, and now this. I was like, who would who would, who is this for? <laughs> so, yeah. So those were really those were really funny for me, and and they just continue to kind of make you love Casey Jones. But and it's so strange that Casey Jones didn't return for the second film, considering how great of a character he was in this film. And you know what I what I learned was apparently this was due to like parental complaints about him being a bad role model and like beating up thugs with sports equipment. I I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. It's kind of yeah, a bummer that he didn't come back. Well, that sounds like something or parents from the early 90s who were so worried about Bart Simpson might say, though. Yeah. So now I'm kind of like, mm, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that, that, that could be the case. Like, oh, my kids might pick up their sporting equipment and go to you know, vigil, become vigilantes. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know if that's a concern of yours. <laughs> yeah. But so okay. And I assume that's that was sort of the role that they filled with Kino, Ernie Reyes Jr.'s yeah. character in the second film, where they're like, well, we have to have some sort of like, human ally that can also fight with them which i remember i loved his character in the second one too i mean he he filled that same sort of you wanted to have a character where you were like i could be fighting alongside the turtles so that was definitely exactly definitely what he goes undercover with the in the foot clan in that in that yeah as people will hear me talk about uh yeah yeah, and ernie reyes jr who was the in-suit stunt double for donatello in this movie which you can, if you know that, when you watch and, he, and Donatello does all those flips and then does that like jump roundhouse kick or whatever it is, uh, you're like, yeah, that's, that looks like Ernie Reyes Jr. That's like similar kind of movie busts out at the beginning of the second film, I think. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, the whole thing, when the, when the turtles come back to the city and they're going to save Splinter, Danny going back and in and talking to Splinter, I felt like, I, I, I love the fact that they were able to like fully flesh out the the origin in a way and the the relationship between him and shredder in a way that didn't i don't know it didn't feel forced to me because it was about mm-hmm. you know it was about 
Danny following Shredder and trying to, you know, fill whatever need for a father figure he had when like Splinter's telling him he has a he has a father that loves him like right in front of him. Yeah. So I thought that All was fathers care for their sons. Yes. Yes. So um and then the other the other big payoff, this a scene I had kind of forgotten about until I re- revisited it was when Tatsu, um, the sort of second in command, is sort of ambushed Casey Jones and Danny when they're rescuing Splinter, and Casey has to fight him, and then he ends up, you know, defeating him with a golf club, and he's mm-hmm. like, he gets he gets one of his one more one liner, and he's like, I'll never call golf a dull sport again. That was great, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean the the last battle with with Shredder and the turtles on the rooftop, that was another thing that kind of reminded me about comic book movies from this era. I don't know if you if you noticed this, but the stakes and the ba- the stakes are much lower, the battles are much more intimate and grounded. Mm-hmm. Not everything has to be the destruction of the world or Those sky beams. You know, everything, all yeah. you know, everything that you see in like and I'm not knocking Avengers movies or Marvel. I love those movies, but like it doesn't always have to be that big and that grand. Yeah. And so that was something that was cool to revisit here in that final showdown with shredder and you know and everything that came with it. So that was really cool. And then the way that the the last scene after uh after they defeat shredder just ties up every loose end like so quickly and neatly in a way that just looks like Danny reuni- reunites with his dad. April gets her job back. April and Casey kiss. Like just everything was just like neat and it just felt I don't know, it just felt organic. It felt nice. So that was something that was cool kind of coming out of the movie at the end there. Yeah, it, tie, it ties it all up real fast. I, I love also in that fight with Shredder and the Turtles, they, even though they don't even know that that's the, you know, the Oroku Saki of the story that Splinter has, you know, obviously told them over the, over the years, but the motivation is clear. They're like, oh, Leonardo's like, I know, only know one thing. This guy knows where Splinter is. Yeah. And that's all they need to know. Yeah. And then they don't realize until Splinter comes up to the roof and removes the mask. They're like, oh, it's him. It's the guy, you know, that Splinter's told us about the guy that cut his ear and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so no, I love that. And uh, Danny going by Dan. Yeah. Is, you know. <laughs> yeah. They have to sh- yeah. They have to show some maturity, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's grown up now. He's a man. He's, he's, yeah. Uh, but he's yeah. still um, gonna always wear Sid Vicious T-shirts and Sex Pistols T-shirts because, like, every scene in this, he's got a different one. And then, and then, of course, we get a, a closing line so memorable that they reprised it for the second one with Splinter making a funny. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. Know, we got to got to have that. As a yeah. kid that was always the best thing. Yeah. Um the other cool. thing that so, was funny is yeah. uh, at, the, at the end after they say that um so the the turtles are dancing on the roof but if you're watching it closely you see Raphael goes over and he like hugs Splinter and I just felt like that was an interesting small detail to kind of like put a cap yeah. on his story arc as the one that was kind of running away from them as a team and then kind of came back full circle at the end there. Yeah, exactly. No, I love that. Um, so in your opinion, what is the the legacy of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie franchise? Starting with this one, running through, I guess, this year's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, which mm-hmm. I is supposedly like six or seven, like seven months away. I feel like we don't really know that much about the focus or the cast or anything. So I'm very curious to hear more about that film. I'm uh, optimistic that it can learn from the mistakes of uh, the several films that preceded it. Yeah. 
Well, for for me, the thing about this this movie first, and then kind of leading into the franchise, you know, one of my main takeaways here was that this movie was created in uh, a fashion that a we don't really see comic book movies done anymore. Um, it's it's dark and gritty. It's super tactile. It was all felt very you know everything in the frame is actually there. This you know this predates the big birth of the CGI in the '90s and all that. And if you want to see this movie today, the 2014 and film and its sequel exist. And they're a perfect contrast to the original and show you how much filmmaking has changed. So that's what's really cool is with this franchise, you can see sort of the different uh, progressions in special effects, in the, the way they want to tell the story of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, but regardless, the different versions of this over the decades, they all exist. And I prefer prefer this one but i know that different generations will have their favorites and that's that's one of the things that i kind of apply to all all movies where there's like you know a new version and an old version and this and that i was i was talking with someone about um about uh you know indiana jones and the franchise and how it's you know grown over the over all this time and the thing why why one film why Raiders of the Lost Ark is my favorite movie, but someone else might like um, the the Last Crusade a little bit better, or you know whatever the case may be. In this in this one, you have it stretched over you know so much time that you you have it the the potential for it to be this generational thing, and I think that's a, a healthy way to approach it, and that's that's been my uh, take on the franchise and its legacy. One thing I know is that um, the creators of the comic, Eastman and uh, Laird and Eastman, have said that this movie is their favorite version of the Turtles. Yeah, makes sense. So what is, uh, what is your ranking? What is, I guess, worst to best, best to worst. <laughs> I, worst to best is usually more fun, but okay, it's okay. up to you. So, so I'll, go, I'll go worst to best. I'll start with uh, number six is Turtles in Time. Uh, this was definitely one that I felt, I, I, I think I can remember being disappointed in this as a kid. And, and expecting a lot more from it going into it. And then also being like, ah, maybe they, maybe going to feudal Japan didn't lend itself to the premise of the turtles and all this. I don't know. Or, or it could have very much been the, the absence of the, the Jim Henson team and the story. I mean, even the time travel, and all that, that may have not been the problem with it. There, there could have been a good movie there if it was just handled differently. Um, yeah. Out of the Shadows is my number five. Uh, that was one where, you know, I, I felt like some of the things that that worked in the first uh, the first of those two movies, just they kind of ramped up things in a way that I didn't like as much. And I don't know if I if I liked the way that they handled Bebop and Rock City or Krang or those things. I don't know. I mean, they're not they're not horrible. I I, I found things that I enjoy in both that one and the 2014 version uh but yeah it, they this is where they would land on my ranking because of that um mm -hmm. number four is the 2014 teenage mutant ninja turtles uh that was another one where you know i could find things that i enjoyed about it but it did just feel like you know this is just different it's just you know they're there it's fun but it's it was just different for for me um i liked some of the action in there uh but again you know it's it's almost hard to rank these because they're so different having something be so uh, tactile and have, having something be so so CGI, you know? 
but then again, um, you have something like my number three, which is Secret of the Use. This was a movie that at one point in time, I might have put this above the first movie. Uh, I think especially as a kid, because I, there was a lot of fun stuff in it. Um, it's interesting that it ended up the way it did, because I know that um, uh, Eastman and Laird didn't want them to use Bebop and Rocksteady then because they felt like the car- cartoon, like it had gotten too cartoonish and too slapstick with a lot of the villains and things. And they liked the way the first one was handled more. But then you get the final product of Secret of the Use. And it's, I mean, I can't imagine it being that much more slapstick than what we got with Toka and <laughs> Razor. Like just very, very like funny mutated villains that are hard to take seriously because they're just like big babies. Um, And then the super shredder and all that. So that's my number three. Number two is the TMNT from 2007. um, Cause that, that one, like you said, felt like a really good continuation of what had been started in the original uh, movie and the secret of the use, but it was really done in such a, such a way that I feel like someone coming into, it would be a great entry point for kids today because the way it's done, the animation is so on point. The characters feel like they do in the cartoon, but they're, it's just leveled up in, in all the different technical levels that the rest of animation has over 20 years, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, my, my six year old, I think that's the one she gravitates towards the most for those reasons I think that you just said. Yeah, and, and, and it feels like a nice balance between the cartoon and the 1990 movie, which, yeah. which brings me to my number one, which is the, the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1990, um, which I, I don't know. I, like I said, I, for years I might have put Secret of the Use over this, but as I've gotten older, and I, maybe it's my appreciation for the craft, for the filmmaking, for what Stephen Barron uh, and... Um, Sally Menke brought to this the score. There's a lot of stuff that I think I maybe didn't appreciate as much when I was younger that is just really glaring now watching this again. Yeah, it's it it definitely feels like it gets the most right of uh what these what this franchise what these franchise and what these characters can be. And yet I feel like all the other ones kind of get bits and pieces of it, but I had a similar sort of you know, realization with 2007 where it's, it felt like, oh, this is the medium. This is the way they need to tell this. You know, this is, this is the, the perfect venue for, uh, or style to present these characters in this world, uh, where you can then, you know, do Dimension X and do Krang and do all these villains that from the show and everything and fully explore that in the same way that I, for years before, uh, this, you know, this year's Super Mario Brothers movie, I was, I would, be like, why don't they just do CG <laughs> Super Mario Brothers? You get big bright colors. You get all the, you can bring all the different characters into it and make it a thing. Yeah, you know, we grew up with the 1993, uh, you know, Bob Hoskins John Leguizamo movie. Yeah, not <laughs> not at all. It doesn't feel like Super Mario whatsoever. No. This new one, Chris Pratt is Mario, which is you know whatever, but like it looks and feels like Mario. And there's Rainbow Road, and there's the you know, the Goombas, and the, all the all the stuff that you know the iconography and and the characters, and none of it feels weird or out of place or right. uh, limited by technology or or anything like that. So I, yeah. I I hope I'm hopeful that Mutant Mayhem will pick up the kind of visual style and get that that right, and then 
you know, have the the story and the characters and performances to back that up, I guess. Yeah, because I mean, Super Mario Brothers, the the Bob Hoskins, John Leguizamo one. I mean, that was it was making the mistakes that this movie didn't, which was it was right. saying, oh, let's throw out this and that, and we don't need all this source material, and you know, whatever, and we just need it to look dark and grittier. They were thinking, oh, if we make it live action, that's all we got to do, and then it's, I mean, right. it's the same. The same mistake that um, Mortal Kombat made in 1995. Yeah. I mean, there are things and 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 charms about that that I uh, still appreciate in a very like campy way. And I mean, absolutely. I don't, I don't, I don't hate the the old Mortal Kombat, but when you watch some of those other movies in the 90s that just took a straight live action adaptation, it really shows you how how many things this movie did right, how many things that mm-hmm. this was taking the right things from the the source material and bringing it in and not making it so goofy, not making it, you know, you can have some quips, you can have some jokes, you can have the turtles be who they are, but let's take a serious approach. And I think that's why it was a success. Yeah. And I think it's why it's moved up on your rankings. It's like over time, you've realized just how sort of special and how lightning in a bottle this movie feels, especially in, you know, in contrast to the rest of it. Yeah, uh, you know, over over time, and it's it, this one is it's, and I've said this on other episodes probably, uh, but this one is one of those movies that you I've gone back to since childhood, since seeing it a million times as a kid, and I'm like, no, it still holds. Like I finished it a little while ago for this episode, and I was like, it still holds up. It's still yeah. good. Like if anything, as a parent now, the themes of fathers and son like resonate with me more than they did when I was a kid. Uh, so, you know, I think it, it kind of ages with you in that way and in the way that the best, you know, the best family films, I guess, should. Yeah. And I, I would love to see how kids, you know, growing up today would receive a movie like this, or if this would just be so hokey because it's like guys in rubber suits or whatever, but I would love to see how that translates for them. Because I mean, I, I feel like for me, this was like one of those movies from that time where it was meant for kids, but it was just like a, like maybe a shade too dark, uh, yeah. in, in how it was presenting things that kind of like offered you sort of like a gateway to some of these, like to like action movies, a gateway to something like was a little bit more darker or like, you know, prepared you for some of those types of, uh, more mature films that you would, you would see later. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is the, the year before I was watching Terminator 2, I think I'm pretty sure I saw that in theaters or soon thereafter. So like there's a whole early 90s action movie run where I was like, ah, I've seen this. This is fine. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. Turtles primed me for this. The Turtles, then Three Ninjas was a couple years later. Oh, yeah. Uh, another one, which feels like, you know, there's a whole post-karate yeah. kid. Surf Ninjas. Three, yeah, Surf Ninjas. Even Power Rangers. Like there's a whole post-karate kid, like decade and a half or so where it's like all karate or ninja yeah. you know ninjas and stuff for kids uh that it's like i feel like has faded away a little bit over yeah time. i mean like you know jean-claude van damme jean-claude van damme and steven seagal were at their at their height of power at that point you know everything yeah. was very like martial arts driven exactly this yeah, and pizza driven which is why yes. no wonder the turtles were like such a phenomenon um, Jackson, this was so much fun. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll definitely get you back on here, uh, or, or my other show at some point in Absolutely. the near future. Tell people where they can find you on social media. All right. So, uh, like I said, I'm on Twitter 
at Jackson Boren. That's a J-A-C-K-S-O-N-B-O-R-E-N. And yeah, I'm on there just sharing my my movie takes, my opinions, my reviews. Um, I'm on other podcasts from time to time. I know um, in the next month or so, I'll be on uh, Nostalgia Cast with Darren Lundberg. So looking forward to that. Uh, I've got a, a few other podcasts coming up in the next couple of months. But um, yeah, that's that's where I'm at. Would love to connect with other uh, movie fans and cinephiles and, and keep all the, the movie love going. Jackson, again, this was so much fun. Let me know if there's any, uh, sometimes on this show we do standalone episodes. If there's any like, smaller franchises like uh, a, a, a movie like a two movie franchise or something you want to talk about on here let me know i know you have city slickers as your uh pick oh your yeah <laughs> yep yeah i'm down for a, a city slickers slash city slickers to the legend of curly's gold uh episode at some point all so right if you're interested in that i'll mark you down all right maybe we'll have to do that this is a blast Robert. Right. thank you for having me on this is really really fun Big thanks to Jackson Boren for coming on to talk about 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This is a huge foundational movie for me, as it was for Jackson, as it was for a lot of people uh, of, of our generation growing up in the 80s and 90s. But I want to know, what is your history with this movie? Have you seen 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Did, did you grow up with it like we did? Or did you join the franchise on one of the later versions perhaps the 2003, 12, 2016 animated series. What is your history with these characters and this particular film? I want to know. You can find me on Twitter <laughs> at Crooked Table. The same handle on Instagram via email at robert at crookedtable.com. Be back next episode with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, the sequel that was released less than a year after this film that we just discussed. So stay tuned for that. And for now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. Catch you the next stop, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED. <laughs> <laughs>